Hey everyone, I uh, want to welcome you this morning. If you're in your home and on your couch, it is so good to have you with us. Uh, I want to just take a moment uh, as I'm back in, and my mic is going in and out. We'll see if that keeps going. That'll be interesting. Uh, it's good to have you. See, that didn't happen when I was filming in my basement because I didn't use a mic. Uh, so here we go. Uh, anyway, it's good to be here. I wanted to take a second, actually, as we started, just to say one more prayer. Uh, there's a lot in the media and in the news right now, just everything happening with the police and in Minnesota and in Minneapolis. And just want to take a second and just pray, because I know it just grieves God's heart, uh, just all aspects of that. So let's just take a moment and just pray with me. God, we live in a fallen and a broken world where people with power do things they should not do. And when we feel powerless, God, sometimes we respond with violence. And God, I just pray that on every side, God, you bring healing. God, you bring comfort. You bring justice. God, we pray for the people in power that they would do everything they can, God, to bring justice to a situation that is clearly wrong. And God, we also pray that you would be with all those who are looting and rioting. And God, you would bring peace and calm to them because so many of the businesses that are getting hurt, God, are just innocent bystanders in all of this. God, would you show up? We need you. We need your strength and we need your power and we need your healing and we need your grace. God, we pray that you would end all racial injustice in the United States. God, you would bring justice and healing and goodness to this country. In your name we pray. Amen. So this Sunday, uh, we're going to be beginning a new series uh, through the book of Ruth. Now, to be fully honest, I wasn't totally sure about Ruth when I first, Aaron and I were talking about it, and he's like, we should do Ruth. And I was like, really? I don't know. But the more I've studied it, the more I am just so excited to get involved. Did you know that Ruth is the only book in the Old Testament that is named after a non-Hebrew, a non-Israelite? The story of Ruth and Naomi also has profound implications for the New Testament and the person of Jesus. Now, one of the things I learned as I was preparing for this message is that Ruth, even though I've read the book many, many times, Ruth 1.1 says that Ruth takes place in the time of Judges. Now, Judges is really interesting. Judges is basically this period of time after the Exodus, so this is after Joshua and Moses, right, but before Saul and David and Solomon. And on one level, this should be this optimistic, exciting, wonderful time, right? The people of God have entered the Promised Land. Yes, they've gotten out of Egypt. It's amazing. And yet, the phrase that often is in the book of Judges is this, every man did was right in his own eyes. And what happens is that chaos actually results. You see this pattern in the book of Judges. The people go their own way, right? And what, sorry, I'm getting this like massive feedback. How It's one of the things that, maybe I'll just hold this. I'm not sure. Got to kind of <laughs> figure it out. 
Give me one second. This is so awkward. There we go. We'll see if that works. All right. So back to Judges. Right. So we're in this book of Judges, and right, they're in the promised land. Should be exciting, but in in reality, it's a time of great ethical ambiguity, a lot of unfaithfulness, and really questionable moral behavior. And there's this phrase in the book of Judges that says this, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And what happens is all this kind of chaos, unfaithfulness, and immorality happens as a result. As that happens, right, they call out to God in their distress, and then God sends a judge. Now, one of the things about judges, though, in our sort of modern world is we think of like gavels and courtrooms, but really a judge in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Judges, is really about rescuers and deliverers. So what stands out after you finish the book of Judges is God is continually sending people in to rescue the Israelites when they start to go their own way and do their own thing. Now, why this is so important is that this is the season, this is the time when Ruth is written. Block, uh, he's a theologian in the New American Commentary, says this, Ruth is like an oasis in an ethical wasteland. The time of Judges is when people are just doing their own thing. It's highly immoral. And Ruth, who's a Moabite, not even from the people of Israel, actually ends up living the way that Israel should. Block again writes this, whereas Judges has developed the theme of Israel's increasing spiritual infidelity, Ruth highlights the presence and nature of genuine spirituality during that same period. So you have this time of chaos and unfaithfulness, and what does Ruth do? Shows us hope, offers us a way forward. So the book of Ruth is divided into four chapters. We're going to go through, as we go through, we're going to divide them into four acts because it's a story. Today we're going to look at act one, scene one. This is how it begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah, Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, but both Mahlon and Chilion died, so that the, women, the, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the narrator tells us at the outset, right, there's this famine, food is scarce, and there's this guy named Elimelech who lives in a place called Bethlehem. And there's a little irony happening at the very beginning of this book. Bethlehem in Hebrew means the house of bread. And what happens? There's no bread in the house of bread, right? There's a famine. And Elimelech has a choice to make. How does he go about feeding his family? So we know from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 that if the people of Israel go and worship other gods, right? This is before, right? God gives them the, the law, then they make it into the promised land. Now they're supposed to live into this law. It says, right, if Israel worships other gods, Yahweh has said he might cause the rain to cease. So Elimelech has this interesting moment where he needs to decide, is this famine caused by God or is it something else? Do I need to change my heart and my ways 
or should I just go somewhere else to find out where there's food? The thing that's interesting, the author gives us no clue as to what really is happening behind the scenes. We don't know whether his choice is wise or unwise. What the author tells us is that Elimelech and his family go from Bethlehem to a place called Moab. Now, a bit of geography might be helpful here. Here's a map. So, Bethlehem is situated about five miles uh, southeast of Jerusalem. The text says the family are Ephraimites, which means they're from this area or region around Bethlehem. Now, the country of Moab was about 30 miles round trip directly east of Bethlehem, but you had to go around the Dead Sea. It's kind of like going from Wellspring past Prunedale to San Juan Batista. But the thing is, it's not like neutral. It's not like someone moving from Pacific Grove and going up to Aptos. Right? Israel does not like Moab, and Moab does not like Israel. Even in the book of Judges, actually, there's this king named Eglon. He rules and oppresses Israel for 18 years, and he is the king of Moab. Right? So it's during this season that Elimelech takes his family and goes to Moab. Almost certainly, they had high hopes. Right? They're thinking, well, at least there is food there. But unfortunately, Elimelech actually dies. But all is not lost, right? Naomi has two sons, right? They're going to keep her family and her family line alive. The sons marry two Moabite women. Now, just as in this is actually prohibited in the law of Moses, but regardless, again, tragedy strikes, right? Ten years later, both of Naomi's sons die. This brings us to scene two of Act One, verses six through ten. Then she arose, Naomi, rose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters in law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Right, so what we have here is Naomi's in the fields, she's working, and she overhears maybe some gossip. She hears someone saying, hey, guess what? In Bethlehem, they actually have food, right? The house of bread is now full. Now, what's really important in scene two is that Naomi makes three appeals. The first appeal, and they're, they're all towards Orpha and Ruth telling them to go back home. This is the first appeal. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will, not, we will return with you to your people. Now, to us, this could be a little odd, right? She tells them, return to your mother's house, which is a way of saying, like, go home and remarry, right? And then in verse 9, she says, hey, find rest in your husband's house. Now, as modern readers, this focus on, like, remarrying is like, huh, wait, why are you so focused on remarriage, right? For us, marriage is often about happiness. It's about love, right? Women, in our context, you can grab a job, you can own property. You could decide, I'm never going to get married and be just fine, 
For Naomi, marriage is about survival, right? In the ancient world, becoming an older widow often meant destitution and alienation. Block, the theologian I quoted earlier, says it pretty intensely. He says this, in the ancient world, a present without men is a future without hope. Now, the Bible is not saying this is right, right? The Bible isn't saying this is how it should be. The Bible is describing what their reality was. It's totally messed up that women had no voice and rights as this time, right? They did not have the power to take care of themselves. So, if for us, if we're going to appreciate the book of Ruth, we have to appreciate how important remarriage is at that time so that you don't become destitute on the side of the road, really struggling. Right? For Naomi, remarriage is about survival. Now, one last thing. Naomi says a word here that's going to be really important for the entirety of the book of Ruth. She says this blessing in verse 8. Right? May the Lord deal kindly with you. Now, for us, kindly is like, oh, that's nice, you know? Kindly, in this passage, is a super important Old Testament term. It's this word called hesed, and we don't really have good English equivalents. It's sort of like the combination of love, grace, faithfulness, steadfast love, mercy. It's like all together, and it's a covenant term that sort of captures God's love and care and affection and steadfast commitment to us. Just pay attention to that for a second because we're going to come back to it. For now, right, Naomi kisses her daughters-in-law, assuming, right, they'll, they'll say goodbye and go on their way, right? They weep together, but Ruth and Orpha, they don't turn around, right? They stick it out, probably because they've been forged relationally through this massive grief period. And this brings us to Naomi's second appeal. She says this, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from remarrying? No, my daughters, for is it exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. All right. Appeal one, Naomi starts with a blessing. Appeal two, now she makes her case. She begins with two rhetorical questions. The first I think we get. Why go with me? Like, why are you going along, right? I think we get that. In the modern world, though, the second one, I don't have sons in my womb that can marry you, is like, wait, what? But again, now we're back to, right, this idea of if you do not remarry, you will be destitute. Secondly, you're going to Bethlehem. What? Bethlehemites, right, people in Bethlehem do not like Moabites. So now she's thinking they're not going to be able to remarry. So she is going to have to have kids that they will have to marry, but... Let's, let's just be honest, right? Naomi in the ancient world is probably in her 40s or 50s. That is really, really old in the ancient world. She, she's saying, guys, this is not possible. You should go home. Right? Naomi, as she says this, she's bitter. She's bitter that her husband has died. 
She's bitter that her sons have died. She's bitter that Orpha and Ruth are in this position having to figure out what to do. After her second peel, right, they weep now a second time. This time, though, Orpha's convinced. She kisses Naomi, and she returns. It's really important to notice here, though, the narrator does not judge her. He's not like, oh, she made a bad choice. In fact, the narrator seems to think, oh, that's quite reasonable. No judgment, which sets the stage for Naomi's third appeal. This is what she said, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Right, so they're on this 30-mile journey back to Bethlehem. Somewhere along the way, Orpha starts walking back. And now Naomi's like, maybe she's in the distance. She's like, look, she's right there. Go after her. Right, when we get to Bethlehem, we worship Yahweh. You worship Chemosh in in Moab. That's going to be a big change. Your people and your gods are going to be different. Right, and Ruth has this decision to make. Who will she follow? Ruth's reply is probably one of the most famous in all of the Old Testament. She says this, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more so if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Let's, let's just kind of break this apart. So Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you. Leave is kind of tame, actually, from the Hebrew. It's more like abandon or forsake. Right? Even though Ruth knows she is going into really dangerous and chaotic waters, she's going into a place where people might not, might not like her, and she's risking not ever getting remarried. And yet, she says, I will never abandon you, Naomi. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Right? Just as Naomi has, or Ruth has walked with Naomi in grief, so she will walk with her in life. She will leave the known contours of her life in Moab and make it all the way to Israel. She says, your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Right? And these fit together. Because what she's talking about, this word is about burial, right? It's a context of, I'm going to be buried in your family burial plot, Naomi. Right? So this word about death is also about family. It is about people. Where you go, I will go, and I will never leave you, and I will become a part of your people. I will leave my family, and I will be so connected to yours that I will be buried in your family plot. Interestingly, she doesn't say, may Chemosh punish me at the end. She says, may the Lord, that's Yahweh, may Yahweh do so to me, and more so if anything but death parts me from you. This is a formal pledge of commitment. That if she doesn't honor it, like, all right, unleash the worst you have, Yahweh, on me. Like, I am going to do this. Now, to appreciate her comment, I think we need to step back again into the time of Judges. This is a time of incredible unfaithfulness in Israel. This is a time of incredible chaos. 
This is a time when Israel is doing all kinds of immoral things. Right? The Hesed of Israel is not embodied in the land. And yet, it is a Moabite woman who embodies the love and the commitment of Yahweh in this chaotic, immoral, and unfaithful time. Right? Hesed is all about commitment. It's all about God saying, I will never leave or forsake you no matter what. Whether it hurts God, right? He ends up sending his son who ends up getting crucified. No matter what, Ruth is like, I will be with you, Naomi. And in this chaotic time when Israel enters the promised land is supposed to exemplify all of who God is, a Moabite woman ends up becoming the exemplar of God's love in the world. Understandably, in this moment, Naomi is speechless. A little over three years ago, uh, my wife, Jeannie, and I, we were up in Washington, and we were, had the opportunity, right, to come down here and do this church plant, which now has become Wellspring uh, in this season. About three years ago, we had a great family, we had a great uh, community up there, and we had all these discernment times with that community to decide whether we'd come down here. And I remember telling one of the families who was really close to us, uh, this was towards the end of the discernment process. They had been involved the process the whole way, but remember we came over to their house. And their couches were set up like an L, so we had the short couch, right? And they were sitting on the long one. And I remember telling this couple, some of you may know them, Josh and Melinda, I remember telling them, hey, I, I think we're going to move down to Pacific Grove. And I remember what Melinda said to me. She said, well, then we're coming to where you go, we go. And it was this moment, right? They have three little kids. They had a house, a stable job, and they're like, no matter what, we are coming. We don't know where we're going to live. We don't know where we're going to work. We are going to re relocate our whole family to come down with you. And the truth is, right, like, other, without all the people, Melinda and Josh and all the people at Wellspring at the beginning and ongoing who have made that kind of commitment to this place, like, we would not be where we are by any means. But it was that moment, I remember right when she said it, I thought, wow, this is probably just a small taste of how Naomi felt in that moment. Right, as she's taking this risk, going back to Bethlehem, she has no idea what's going to happen. Jeannie and I are moving down here. We have no idea whether those things are just going to go down in flames in a month. It's like, well, at least someone will be with us. Which brings us to scene three. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. All right, so they continued this 30-mile walk back to Bethlehem and they arrive, and the narrator says, the whole town is stirred. It's like they're gossiping. They're like, pss, 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 you know, sort of whispering. And it seems like they're kind of looking. Maybe they've heard of Elimelech's death, 
Right? Maybe, they've, maybe they even attended his funeral. You know, maybe some people came over and they mourned with her. But that was 10 years ago. And she's aged over this time, and now they're wondering, is that Naomi? And they're kind of whispering, but not saying anything to her. You know, but she kind of picks up on it. Oh, they're talking about us. And she says this, right? Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. She's saying, don't call me the pleasant one. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Same word that she used before. Same word she's going to say here, right? Dealt bitterly with me. Don't call me the pleasant one. Call me the bitter one. And she's bitter because she says the Almighty has caused this calamity, has brought this evil upon her. Verse 21, she says, I went away full and I've come back empty. Again, there's some irony here. She has, you know, she was full in a sense, although she left because there was a famine. So in some ways, literally, she was, her stomach was not full, but she was married. She had two sons and now she's coming back full of grief in this very powerless position, and she's just overwhelmed by her emptiness. The presence of food is not quite enough to overcome the bitterness she feels. And this is true despite Ruth's heroic commitment, right? Ruth has this awesome commitment, but it doesn't make everything better. She's still bitter. Which then brings us to this question of, as Act 1 comes to an end, Right? How does this relate to us? How does this story fit into our everyday life? I think there's two things in particular I want to highlight. The first is this, just the idea of commitment. Right? When I think of Ruth's willingness to commit to Naomi at great personal cost, I, don't know, I just find it incredibly inspiring. In a culture where everyone is just doing their own thing, everyone's just looking out for their own interests in the time of judges, Ruth embodies the love of God in such a profound way by committing to Naomi. I think this commitment idea is really real for us, right? One, we're living in the shadow of COVID-19 where we are literally physically forced apart. Two, we live in a culture that is all about keeping options open, right? FOBO, right? The fear of a better offer. Uh, Let me wait. Let me wait and see if something better comes down the line. Or FOMO, the fear of missing out. Like, you got to RSVP to everything, right? And then drive yourself crazy because you don't want to miss out on anything, but you don't commit to any one thing in particular. The truth is, though, when the church doesn't take commitment seriously, it has significant implications, right? One of the reasons that God established the church as a community of people rather than just meeting with us one-on-one in a coffee shop, you know, revealing himself one-on-one and never bringing us together, you get an island, you get an island, right? He brought us together to be a community is so that we, like Israel failed to do, not do what was right in our own eyes, but actually commit to one another and exemplify his hesed, his commitment, his covenant faithfulness in the world. But when we just do our own thing, we actually undermine this. When our commitment isn't at least commitment to one another, isn't at least greater than the general commitment in the culture, we do not exemplify, highlight, underline the commitment and love of God through thick and thin in our lives. 
So I guess I just wonder, right, what does it look like for us to embody God's commitment to us, to one another, as a way of illustrating who God is in the world? And I think this is especially true as we shelter in place, because there's this inherent drift that happens relationally and in our hearts. As we just, you know, day in, day out, week in, week out, we're just doing our own thing in our own house, on our own. There is this force that pushes us to get apart. And I think in some ways it affects our heart. What does it look like for us to commit to one another? As I was thinking about it this morning, I think this commitment can have lots of faces. It can have a relational face. Like, what does it look like for us to be good friends to one another? One person in our well community one day just like dropped off this massive meal, just like this. It was like a mind-blowing feast. And literally, I almost started just crying. Because there was this moment of I was feeling down, I was discouraged, and someone dropped it off, and I was just like, someone loves me. <laughs> But what does it look like for us to be good friends to one another? But I think it also hits the side of time. Are we willing to spend time, invest some of our time, which is a precious commodity, into other people? I mean, Ruth obviously does this. She's like, I give all my time to loving you. But what does it look like to give our time to one another? What does it look like to, for us to invest our finances and our skills into this place. Right? Relationships, time, money, skills. And I would say, as you're listening, does one of those sort of, you know, like, you're like, oh, I nailed that, nailed that. Uh, you know, pay attention to that one. Uh, you know, what is that for you? What does it look like to take a little bit of time this week to consider what is God's invitation to you? I'm not up here trying to say you have to do this. What is the Spirit leading you to do to embody His love for this body locally in the world? Consider that. The other thing I think I would like to just throw out there is this idea of God's presence. Now, one of the things, one of the reasons I was hesitant to do the book of Ruth is because when you read the book, you're sort of left at some point with like, all right, where is God in all this? Like, we went through this whole act, and people are talking about God, but like, from what I can tell, God hasn't said anything. God hasn't, like, shown up and, like, knocked someone off a horse on their way to Damascus. God hasn't, like, shown up in this powerful way. Angels aren't, like, singing. The heavens aren't parting. Like, it's like, where is God in this story? I mean, His presence, in some ways, is all over the place. Right? He is the one who brings food to Bethlehem as Naomi's gathering, right? She's in the farm, gathering, gleaning, farming something, and she hears the gossip. Is that God's grace? That she hears that gossip next to her and hears, oh, there's food in Bethlehem. Right? Naomi seems to assume that God is the one who blesses. He's actively involved, right? Because that's what she says, right? To Naomi or to Orpha and Ruth, may God deal kindly with you. She seems to presume that God is the one who's dealing kindly. Naomi also seems to presume that God is opposing and against her at times. And in all those moments, the narrator, the story, is inviting us to say, where do we think God is in the story? Is He opposing Naomi? Is He a God who blesses? 
Is it just coincidence that she hears this in the fields, or is that God showing up in His grace to her? I think one of the questions I have when I read this book, right, is because there's not so much overt, God is doing these crazy things, it actually feels a little more like my life. Like, I have stories of God doing awesome, profound things, totally, but most of my day-to-day life looks a little more like Ruth. And now I'm on the side of, where did God show up in Ruth, and where is God showing up in my life? The narrator and the story is inviting us to look for the presence of God in the story, and then as the story reads us into our lives, where is the presence of God in your life? Do you have a sense? When you look back over this last day, this last week, are there moments where you're like, oh yeah, I'm not alone. God is with me here. Do you know? One practice I've found helpful and I've talked about a number of times is called the examine. But it's a simple practice. It's in the morning, you wake up and you just say, hey God, please help me to see your presence today because I am a person who is pretty much blind to your presence. Help me to see your presence and hear your voice. And at the end of the day, take five, ten minutes and just sit and say, all right, God, where were you today? And just allow God to guide, allow God to lead, because the thing is, the presence of God is everything. And the story of Ruth invites us to consider where He is in our lives. As the worship team come back up, I'm just going to pray for a second. Just pray with me. Holy Spirit, I just invite you in this moment to come into all the houses on the peninsula and marina and seaside and Pacific Grove and Carmel and Pebble Beach and Monterey and Salinas. God, would you come? under the chairs and the couches, whether we sit alone or we sit with others, in this moment, would you come? Reveal yourself. Open up our mind to your presence that we may see the ways that you are active and involved in our lives right now. And God, if we don't feel your presence, God, may we with the courage that Naomi has to say, God, I feel bitter I feel frustrated. I feel alone, God, and I pray that you would draw near. Holy Spirit, speak to us as we go into worship that we may hear your voice and know your goodness.